This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. I'd like to wish everyone a pleasant good evening. It's so good to see each and every one of you. This uh, evening, Brother Dwayne and Brian and myself are going to be uh, teaching on some apologetics concerning baptism. In Romans 1 and 16, Paul said the words, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And I pray that you and I this evening are like Paul and are not ashamed of the one and true gospel. It is one that we need to defend. And so this evening, what we want to do is to maybe refresh our minds on some of the arguments against baptism. You know, the world is teaching us that that we are saved by faith alone. And so in order to be able to teach that, they have to explain away baptism in almost every verse. And so we're going to be looking at a couple of verses this evening, and uh, I'm going to be looking at myself on a teaching of baptism. I'm going to be looking at the argument and the teaching that baptism is an outward expression of an inward faith. There's a false teaching out there that will teach that baptism does not change our eternal destiny or our standing with God, but rather it's a public expression of what already transpires in our life. It's a teaching, it's a, it's a teaching about baptism that, that baptism is a declaration of our faith in Christ. And our decision to follow Jesus. A lot of times in congregations that teach this doctrine, they will have what they what we call a baptism Sunday. And they usually have you know these maybe uh, once or twice a year. But everyone in that year that has uh, decided to to follow after Jesus Christ will on that day be baptized. And there may be 20 or 30 people. They will invite their family and their friends. And it's a time of celebration. It's a time of a lot of pictures are taken. And that's what they typically do. So what we want to do this, this, this evening is I want to look at uh, maybe two ways that for us to consider when we are studying with someone when they have the belief that baptism is an outward expression of an inward faith. The first one is, was baptism designed to be an outward expression? Is that what we see in the New Testament church? And I, when, I, when I hear someone teaching this or stating this, my mind first goes to uh, the evangelist Philip. We can remember that that he was told by the Holy Spirit to go into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, he would find a man uh, who was a eunuch that was studying about Jesus Christ. And we know that this eunuch was in this 
in this chariot and he was studying Isaiah, and, and, but he did not have a full picture of Jesus. And Philip came in and taught him more perfectly the whole picture of Jesus as the death, burial, and resurrection. And so as they are in this chariot traveling, the eunuch asked Philip a question. Acts 8, 36 and 38. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? We'll stop there. So they're traveling in the chariot. The eunuch looks out and sees a body of water and asks Philip, Hey, we've been talking about baptism. What doth hinder me to be baptized right here, right now? And so it's at that time that Philip said, you know, let me tell you more about baptism. You see, it's an outward expression of an inward faith. And although there's a body of water right here, we're going to not take advantage of this. But when you get home, I want you to send a letter to your family and your friends. And at a convenient time for, for yourself, you invite them to come and to witness you being baptized. Because this is it's, it's something that you do for a big crowd of people. Did he say that? That would have been an opportune time for him to say that. But no, he did not. He asked a question to the eunuch. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? And that eunuch said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And Philip said with urgency, stop the chariot now. They stopped right there and then. And they went into the water both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Actually, you know, at the, at, we, what we see is that there's always an urgency when it comes to baptism. The gospel is preached, and baptism soon follows. It's not something that is put off for a, a later date. When we look at the early church when it was established on the day of Pentecost, the people there, when they heard the gospel for the first time, they said, what must we do to be saved? Apostle said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of your sins. And that day, and that day, the same day the gospel was preached, they were baptized and they were added to the church. Acts 22 and 16, and now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Never do we find throughout all the New Testament time when they put off baptism. Never is it taught that, hey, this is only done for an outward expression of your faith. It is done the day that the gospel is preached. Another thing that I like to bring up when I hear this teaching or, or this belief is that they're believing that faith plus grace equals salvation. And then later on, at their convenience, there's baptism. And so I try to teach them that that is the wrong order as far as sequence goes. And how I go about doing that is I pose the question, what places us in Christ? What places us in Christ? And then I ask, why is knowing what puts us into Christ so important? And then I will read these scriptures. 2 Timothy 2 and 10. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect, that they may obtain 
Salvation, which is in what? In Christ Jesus. Salvation is found in Christ Jesus. That's why it's important to know what puts us into Christ. Uh, Romans 8 and 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who what? Are in Christ Jesus. So when we are in Christ Jesus, there's no longer any more condemnation. That's a good place to be, right? 2 Corinthians 5 and 7. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. Romans 3 and 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption. That's in what? In Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1 and 7. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So we learn in these passages of Scripture that it is vital that we are in Christ Jesus because we have redemption, we have access to His blood, there's no condemnation, we are a new creature, and we have forgiveness of sins when we are in Christ Jesus. So the next question that we ask is, how do we get into Christ? How do we get into Christ? And before I jump into that, I simply state two little definitions of some words that are very important in studying this. The word unto. The unto means that we are going in a specific direction towards an object. We are not there, but we are in a journey towards that object. Into means that that designation or that destination has been reached. Or it means to be enclosed or surrounded by something. So unto means that we're going in the direction of something. Into means that we have arrived. Now I want us to look at the correlation when it comes to unto. When it comes to faith, repentance, and confession. Romans 10 and 10. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. 2 Corinthians 7 and 10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation. A repentance which bringeth no regret, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. So we learn a couple of things here. We learn that faith, repentance, and confession do not put us into Jesus Christ. They get us into the direction, the right direction. So what puts us into Christ Jesus? Baptism does. Galatians 3 and 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Romans 6 and 3. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. So we know learn that faith, repentance, and confession that is pointing us in the direction. We're going in the right direction. But it's at our baptism that we are placed into Jesus Christ, which gives us what? Forgiveness of sins, redemption. It gives us a new, we're a new body, a new creature. So it's not until baptism that we are actually saved. We can't have baptism without faith or repentance or confession. They are all equally important. But baptism is that time that we enter into Jesus Christ and we have forgiveness of sins and redemption.
I'll turn services over to Brian. So today I would just like to briefly take a look at uh, Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Uh, this verse has produced some controversy because while the first half says that uh, if you believe and are baptized, you'll be saved, the second half of the verse leaves the part about baptism out. It only says that one that doesn't believe will be condemned. So proponents of salvation by faith alone, uh, they use this verse to support the notion that baptism is optional. So let's first, I'm just going to tell you their argument as though I were them. I want you to hear what they say. So the wording found in this verse is unfortunate for two reasons. First and foremost, the entire section of Mark 16 verses 9 through 20 is not found in the earliest, most reliable transcripts. Most Bible scholars do not think this was part of the original divinely inspired writing of Mark's gospel. And secondly, this passage is all too easily misinterpreted to imply that baptism is required for salvation. Logically, however, even if accepted as original to Mark, these words do not prove baptism is a requirement for eternal life because there are other passages that affirm that belief alone is necessary for salvation. John 3.18, 5.24, chapter 12, verses 44 through 50, chapter 20, verse 31, Romans 10, verse 9, 1 John 5, verse 13. Even the last half of this verse, Mark 16.16, 16, states that Lack of belief is all that is necessary to not be saved. They continue to say, baptism is found in proximity with belief in Christ in the New Testament only because of the culture. In the time of the early church, if someone joined a particular sect of Judaism, they would publicly declare their allegiance with baptism. This is why John the Baptist baptized his followers and in those times, a new believer didn't have to go through a class or give a detailed testimony in order to be baptized, as they do today in some churches. They were baptized as soon as they affirmed the teacher's message, like the Ethiopian official who met Philip. Consider also the thief on the cross who declared his faith in Jesus. Jesus assured him he would go to paradise with no mention of baptism. So, they say... Baptism is not a requirement for salvation, it is a response to salvation. And when we're baptized, we're giving a public affirmation that we choose to follow Jesus. Now the Bible talks about three different baptisms. You have John's baptism, which was for those before the resurrection who agreed that their sin was wrong and they resolved to live a better life. Then you had the believer's baptism, which is for those who understand that while repentance is important, we can never be so good as to earn salvation. It is performed after we are saved. And then there is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is what we receive at the moment of salvation when you, you know, say the sinner's prayer or something like that. The Holy Spirit then dwells within us permanently, making us saved by Jesus Christ. And, you know, there's other verses that they quote for that, but that's their argument. That is the faith alone argument. Now, the opposing argument uh, I'm just going to give you a couple of uh, famous scholars who uh, some of their thoughts on it. Matthew Henry, he said of Mark chapter 16, verses 14 through 18, that it, the evidences of the truth of the gospel are so full that those who refuse it are justly condemned by their unbelief in the judgment. 
because the Lord renewed his choice of the 11 disciples at the very end of Matthew is the easiest place for me to find it, chapter 28. He gives his great commission. He reaffirms to them that they are the people he's sending out to the world as special teachers. And he commissioned them to go into all the world to preach his gospel to every creature and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Let me read that for you. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. In other words, he has the authority for what he's about to say. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now, interestingly, when Jesus gave direction concerning the gospel, he said to teach and baptize. Obviously, Jesus would not be encouraging a faithless baptism. He expected baptism to be the response to a saving faith in the gospel as it was presented. But he didn't stop with belief, did he? The conclusion of the matter was not even just baptism, actually. He ended his command here by telling us to obey with baptism being the very first step of obedience. And he ended his command by saying, or as Brother Clint recently pointed out, that doesn't mean it was uh, the work of man in submitting to baptism, because that's what we're told is that baptism is a work. We kind of take credit away from God when we say that. So what happens is that we believe, we repent, and we obey because we are convinced to do so. We have faith in the message of the gospel. As Clint just said, you're moving unto salvation, but you haven't achieved it just yet. Just as gasoline has the power to fuel a car, it first has to be placed in the tank. Then it has to be consumed through a catalytic reaction that is a work. But without the gas, any amount of work to move that car is futile. Without faith, any work of baptism is also futile. And just as gas in a can won't move the car, you have to put it in the car's tank. Faith without obedience will not consummate your faith. Henry continues his line of thought a little bit, but I want to move on to uh, Meyer. He said that in the case where baptism had not occurred, it's obvious that the refusal of faith, failure to believe, necessarily excluded baptism, which is why Mark 16, 16 doesn't include the baptism at the end. Because you're not going to have a valid baptism if it's not preceded by a belief in the gospel which you are hearing. So it's just a, really a matter of semantics. You know, it's common sense. They don't have to mention that because it wouldn't have happened if there had not been faith. These people that refused to be baptized, you know, they would have despised the preaching, the, the direction to go do something. So that baptism would be of none effect if it had happened. Uh, there is an example given of Simon Magus. You may remember his stories in Acts chapter 8, verses 13 through 25. And he professed to believe he was even baptized, but there's a lot of evidence to lead us to believe that maybe his faith wasn't real. Maybe he just went through the motions. He did it for show. And that would be an example of why Mark 16, 16 is worded the way that it is. A person can, you know, immerse themselves in water and have no belief at all. Is that baptism valid? 
No, because it's all part of a, uh, a conditional package that we have to follow and accept if we're going to uh, achieve salvation. The Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges says that he that believeth and is baptized clearly highlights that our salvation is not faith only. Baptism is required by the Lord. Compare the words of Philip, the deacon to the Ethiopian eunuch. I'm not going to reread what Clint just brought up there. But the idea put forth is that it's dependent upon this pre-existing faith. So as they sat there and they talked, this Ethiopian eunuch, he was moved by the scripture. He believed the teachings of Philip. He heard that he needed to be baptized. He believed it was necessary. So that when he saw that water, he knew action had to be taken. And there was urgency. He's like, I want to do it now. Because I know that just because I'm sitting here believing doesn't mean that I've wrapped this thing up. No, that happens when I get into that water and am baptized. And so he rushed over to do it. And Philip didn't waste any time. He immediately commanded that chariot to stop. In summary, I just want to point out that Scripture has to be taken in its entirety and not selected parts. And when you deal with apologetics, this is really one of the most important things. Uh, you need to be able to draw from the entirety of Scripture to present a complete point when you're answering a difficult question. You, what you don't do is you don't rely on people who may have even dedicated their lives to studying how to present a gospel in the way that they want it to. If you listen by, to faith alone proponents, they can prevent a, or present a very convincing case if you allow them to. But it's always missing other pieces of the, of the Bible. Now, <clears throat> when one considers the argument for faith alone, as Clint said, what we see is a concerted effort to leave out things and to talk around them. And we see this over and over. We don't have time to tonight go into why it is that they're doing this, but what I want to remind you tonight is that Jesus said he is the door. There's a lot of I am statements that Jesus made in the book of John. One of them is that he is the door. The door to what? He is the door to eternal life, forgiveness of sins. Beyond that door is a whole new life, and there's work to do for God there. We're not told to just get right with the Lord, then that's the end of it. We're told to learn and obey, to grow and to teach, to work in the vineyard of the Lord. That was in that great commission. We're called to do these things after we ourselves have been justified or declared righteous. Now, if you don't know what justified means, that means that we were not righteous at any point. But the great judge, God, has decided to declare us righteous. We have positional righteousness based upon the righteousness of his son Jesus Christ we're declared such so that we can be reunited with God so that we can be restored in right fellowship with him and then live in obedience to him just as it was in the garden of Eden before the fall the very first step of that obedience that uh, that reconciliation is baptism it has to happen disobedience brought us out of fellowship only obedience will bring us back into it. Now, I say all of this about Christ being the door because I want you to think about uh, how one can never get into that room if they never get through the door. If Satan can pervert the way that we respond to the gospel, if he can manage to keep people from ever stepping through the door and instead have them simply stand outside declaring that we believe that door is there, we believe the door is good. 
We believe that door leads to life, but we never actually step through it. Well, then Satan has won a mighty victory in our lives when that happens. Let's close up my section by reading 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Peter says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What Peter's saying here is that baptism is not a simple rite. It's not just an expression of something. Baptism is the answer of a good conscience, one that has developing faith toward God. Baptism is an integral part of the equation. And it is right to say that it saves us when it is undertaken as an act of obedience in response to a pre-existing faith. Therefore, when we read Mark 16, 16, uh, we can understand that it doesn't mention baptism for the unbelieving damned soul because baptism would be a moot point if you did not believe. And that's all my remarks. I'll turn it over to Dwayne. All right, Brian uh, briefly alluded to the third and final installment that we're going to look at tonight, and that's why was the thief saved without baptism? We all know that when Jesus was crucified, he, had, he was crucified along with two criminals, one on each side of him, and the one criminal was rude to him, uh, derided him, and, and spoke down to him, but yet the other criminal did the exact opposite. He, he sought salvation from Jesus, and as we know, Jesus granted him that wish. And so, as we just, in the context of baptism, we know that for some reason, there are so many people out there that just won't accept baptism. They argue it up and down for any reason, and this is one of those things, those areas that they use as an excuse, but hey, look, look, the guy that on the cross, he wasn't baptized, and he's not saved, so why do I have to be baptized? So let's delve into this, and I think what we're going to see is that this, this uh, narrative can very easily be debunked. We're going to see it in just a short study this evening. So our text this evening is Luke 23, verses 39 through 43. And we read here, And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering him rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing that thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. So just looking at this example, and this is a prime example of why you, and Brian again alluded to this, it's so very important to study the scripture, not just take one piece of scripture, but to look at the entire uh, the entire scripture. Because if you look at this example, this man, Jesus himself says, you will see me today in paradise. Baptism isn't part of this equation. You know, so the unlearned, those who will not take the time to study, can very easily say, you know, that's right. Uh, you can be saved without baptism. 
But just a quick look at the scripture will show what a what a wrong statement or a wrong theory this is. You know, logically speaking, you could easily make some arguments right back at that. Like, would it have made any sense for Jesus to take this man off the cross or both of them come off the cross? You know, they were both condemned to death. Would it have made sense for Jesus to make the cross float up on this man and dunk him in the water? You know, you can get into all kinds of arguments but as we know, we don't have to rely on arguments like that on logic. Jesus, His own words and the words of the apostles very easily uh, tell us uh, what was right or what is right. We can look in a couple verses here in Hebrews because you could make the, the argument that perhaps Jesus made an exception for this thief on the cross. After all, He was the Son of God. He is the author and finisher of our faith. We see in Hebrews 5, verses 8-9, through 9, it says this, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto, them, unto all them that obey him. And Hebrews 12 and 2, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So you could take these verses here and you could make the argument, well, Jesus was the Son of God. This is part of God's plan. He made an exception for this man because the man was nailed to the cross. But if you dive just a little bit deeper into the Scriptures, you realize Jesus did not have to make an exception for this man. Because remember, when this was going on, when they were hanging on the cross, the gospel plan of salvation was not complete yet. Jesus had not died, He had not been buried, and He had not risen from the dead. So there was no exception that had to be made for this man. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4 says, Therefore we are buried with Him, that is with Christ, by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. And in Colossians 2 and 12, buried with Him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised Him from the dead. So it's a failed argument to say that somehow we don't need baptism to point to the thief and say, well, the thief didn't need baptism, so we don't need it. That's a failed argument because... These words came after it was fulfilled. We are, baptism is, it is a physical act, but it's spiritual in nature. It is a spiritual act of being buried in the waters of baptism, putting the old man to death and coming up being raised anew to a new spiritual life. We've already read this this evening. I'd like to read it again. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Again, these instructions here 
are given after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then shortly thereafter, after these words were spoken, Peter gives his famous uh, instructions in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the, our Lord, as the Lord our God shall call. The difference between our situation and the thieves is this. The gospel plan was still in the works. Once again, Jesus had not died. He had not been buried and he had not risen yet. It had, when these words were spoken, that had been fulfilled. Those steps had been taken. And now the instructions are, Peter says, every one of you be baptized and what will happen? You will receive the Holy Ghost. We can look back into the words of Jesus. Again, this is the other side of when Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This is what He said of this promise that is spoken of. John 7, verses 37 and 39. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto Me and drink. He that believeth on Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly, <clears throat> belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake He of the Spirit, which they that believe on Him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Very important. When Jesus spoke these words, He was talking of something that was to come, of the Holy Spirit that He promised, I'm going to, you are going to have the Holy Spirit. And as we read here, Jesus Christ tells us Himself, the Holy Ghost or it says the Holy Ghost was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So when Jesus was there and told the man that he would see him in paradise, at that point Jesus was not yet glorified. In John 14, verses 25 and 26, Jesus says, These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Again, this is a promise of things that are going to happen in the future. The Holy Ghost whom the Father will send. And that was fulfilled when the church was established after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So I think just by looking at just a short study, you can see that it's very easily debunked that somehow because the thief wasn't baptized that that means no one has to be baptized. It, the, the, that's just a flimsy argument and a short look at the Scriptures of the words of Jesus Himself just shows that that's simply not true. Uh, there's people that look for any excuse not to be baptized, but uh, the, the, simple, the truth is very simple. As, Jesus, as the Apostle Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins, and you will receive the Holy Ghost. So, that's where I'll conclude uh, my little sermon this evening. Uh, and at this time, we will offer a song of invitation. If there is somebody here that hasn't obeyed the Gospel,
I think we've made the point pretty clear that it's necessary to be baptized. If you're not baptized and you understand it and like to take that step, we urge you to do so. Or if you've already taken that step and would like the prayers of the church, we ask you to come forward while we stand and sing. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.